Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Most of us want to live a healthy, long life. What is the best way to switch on your body's ability to promote cellular protection, regeneration, and rejuvenation? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today I am joined by a real treat, Walter Longo, who's going to help us answer that question. He is the director of the Longevity Institute in, at USC, the University of Southern California, and has been there for over 20 years, passionately working on this topic and helping us understand some of the strategies. And he wrote a book, The Longevity Diet, which goes into great detail, which we're going to be discussing today. It's really a, a very good book uh, that has loads of great information. I don't agree with it 100%, but that I rarely do, but most of it is just fantastic and provides the research framework to support the recommendations. And Dr. Longo is, is not a clinician, he, he's a researcher, so he's steady in his lab uncovering the, the secrets to, so that we can live healthy and long. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Dr. Longo. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, so um, why don't, you, you were born in Northern Italy and uh, then we actually weren't too interested in in science, you're more interested in music. And then you migrated to the United States and actually moved to a place that was not literally within miles from where I was living. Of course, I never knew you at the time, but you went moved to Melrose Park, Illinois. Hmm. And we were probably there at the same time. I, I was a, maybe a few miles north of that. So why don't you tell, tell us your journey uh, as to how you progressed from a musician to a longevity researcher and one of the top ones in the field? Yeah, so I came to the U.S. actually to study jazz, and um, you know, after Chicago, I uh, I moved to uh, University of North Texas. They had a, a great jazz program, and essentially, I thought I was going to be a musician, a professional musician. But uh, uh, then I realized that um, this was not. Uh, I mean, uh, actually, the event that made me switch was that they asked me to direct the marching band. Um, and, uh, and I was not, uh, I was going to be a, a rock uh, guitar player, jazz and rock. And so I wasn't too enthusiastic about that. And so I decided, uh, right after that, I decided to, uh, to switch. And of course, aging uh, had been in my mind uh, and this, uh, idea of studying, uh, why we age and why we die was in my mind, obviously, uh, for a long time. And that was a great opportunity to, uh, you know, to switch and, and I joined the biochemistry department uh, and, uh, and that was it. I just taught chemistry and biology. If I learned those, uh, it probably sets me up for, uh, uh, for uh, you know, studying aging and, and also age-related diseases. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, and you do a magnificent job of that. You really understand the biochemistry very well. And as a result of that, you're able to uh, not only design the studies, but interpret other people's research and apply them to some practical strategies, which is really what I really appreciate about what you're doing. But I think one of your first uh, ventures into this area was when you worked with um, Wal joined Wal Walford's group for your doctoral work and uh, study the effect of caloric restriction. And I'm wondering if you can comment now clear on caloric restriction, because there clearly seems to be some benefits in some animals, uh, although it's questionable in humans. But what I think is most magnificent and, and you've, with your work is that you demonstrate that you don't have to go feeling deprived and and go through this enormous arduous process of restricting calories and you can achieve almost uh, probably even the same or better benefits by some 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 on a fasting approach or in your case the fasting mimicking diet so can you expand on that yes so walford uh, uh, was a pioneer of calorie restriction which is uh, basically restriction of calories every day uh, independently of the content so just eat about 30% less every day to the point that uh, you, you really reach a very low weight uh, 
uh, of about BMI of about 19. So these are uh, in men is, is, is something very, very extreme. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I first joined uh, a wall for lab, he was in, in biosphere too. He was in this place in Arizona where him and other seven people had uh, gone and, and started the first human study on calorie restriction. Um, and it turns out that um, that, that works uh, on, on many things, but it's also has uh, causes a lot of problems. Um, and um, and in, in the monkey studies suggest that it causes as many problems as solutions. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think where the, the fasting mimicking diet, the periodic nature of what we're doing comes from uh, is the this uh, um, idea of keeping the benefits uh, by uh, eliminating the problems. And, and of course, you know, I, I had the advantage of having the molecular biology and the biochemistry, which Walford didn't have. So at the time, there was not much known. There was not a single gene that was known uh, that regulated aging. And so uh, having those allowed us to do this periodically. So you do it once every two, three, four, even six months, and you can still get benefits that are long lasting. And that's the idea of the, of the fasting mimicking diet. And we're, and we're going to go into great detail on that later, of course. But I, I want to continue with your journey. And you, I think, then transitioned to studying yeast and actually starving them, putting them on a, a fasting diet, which is easy to do with, with little microbes like that. And you, what you found was that sugar was a nutrient responsible for the yeast having accelerated aging and dying early. Uh, and you found that it activated two genes known as RAS and PKA. Uh, that, that are known to accelerate aging. So can you expand on that? Yes. So, I mean, it, we, Walford, we were working with human samples and mice, and, and it was very clear that not knowing uh, about the genes and the molecular biology was going to greatly limit us in, in moving forward. So that the gamble was, let's move back to a very simple system and hope that, and we learn everything about aging in this simple system, and then hope that this applies to back to humans. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, the, the, the gamble uh, worked out and, um, and we did identify what I call the sugar pathway, uh, the PKA, RAS PKA, and then the protein pathway, the uh, 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 TOR assist kinase. Um, and, um, and it's very clear, not just in yeast, and other people went on to show that this was true also for uh, my worms, flies, mice, etc., and we now suspect with our own work, then with the Laron uh, people in Ecuador, we suspect that a lot of the same uh, mechanisms uh, are, are true. They were true for yeast, are true for, for mammals. So uh, we know that, um, for example, growth hormone and growth hormone receptor in, in humans uh, regulate both the TOR and PKA uh, pathway. So, so now we suspect that, of course, there's a network uh, starting with the growth hormone uh, and ending with uh, uh, the, these transcription factors that we described. Um, so there, these are what I call the captains of protection that are regulated by, by the food that you, uh, that you eat. Um, so Okay. Well, this is an, I want to tease out the details on this because this is really fundamental to your work. And <clears throat> is it true to state that you were one of the earliest researchers to identify the sugar as and fasting as being a really important part of the process for improving longevity yes so i mean i published uh, i think it was uh, in 97 on the uh, on the effect of uh, starvation you know water only fasting basically and making uh, yeast live a lot longer and and a lot stronger if you will so then you know Closely after that, we were able to work out, show that it was in fact the, the sugar pathway and the protein pathway that was responsible for it. So if you knock out both uh, RAS or PKA and uh, something called SCH9, which is the SCH kinase gene in yeast, uh, you could obtain up to a uh, five-fold lifespan extension. So it was clear that um, the effect of fasting uh, were caused in part by shutting down these two pathways. All right, and I want you to tie all this together. So let's go back to the Larone syndrome you mentioned, which for those who aren't aware, it's a relatively rare genetic disorder in which the individuals who have it lack the receptor for growth hormone. So this will really give you a good idea of the impact that growth hormone has on human physiology because these people 
I mean, they could be have terrible diets, but they just don't get cancer. So, uh, and uh, you know, so maybe you can expand on that and, and ex explain how that matured your uh, hypothesis as to how how growth hormone impacted longevity. Yeah. So uh, we had, uh, I mean, on one side we had the genetics of aging. Uh, and it was clear that uh, if you knocked out these genes, the organism lived longer. But of course, the, the, everyone working on humans said, uh, well, this may not apply to humans. And so uh, we uh, looked for equivalence to what we had identified in yeast. And we knew that in mice, uh, growth hormone deficiency and growth hormone receptor deficiency caused record longevity extension, about a 40 to 50%, and also mm -hmm. record health. So. The, the mice that lack growth hormone and growth hormone receptor, this is work by John Kapchik and, and Andre Barkey. The, the, these mice, not only they live 40% longer, but about half of them will get to the end of life without any disease. So this mm -hmm. is very, very impressive and remarkable. Um, so we knew that this was true for yeast and this was true for mice. And then uh, the Laron uh, was our, our way to uh, demonstrate that this is also true for people. So they are protected from uh, subjects that have growth hormone receptor deficiency, meaning they, they, it's like they had very low levels of growth hormone. That, that is the equivalent. Uh, and uh, they uh, uh, rarely get cancer, rarely develop diabetes. And we've also just published on their cognitive uh, uh, performance and they, their brain, uh, their cognitive function are more similar to people that are younger than they are. Uh, and this is also confirmed at least the part on cancer uh, has been confirmed by Svilaron in Europe and the Middle East. So we've been following about 100 subjects in Ecuador, and it's been following, following another 250 or so that are spread around Europe and, and, and uh, the Middle East. And up to a few years ago, there was not a single cancer case out of 350 of them uh, anywhere in the world that, that could be identified. That's quite impressive. But is, is it true that these individuals with Lerone syndrome, they don't have low growth hormone, they may have normal levels, but they just don't have the receptor for growth hormone. So essentially, it's like they don't have any growth hormone. Would that be true, summary? Yes, they have high levels, in fact, higher levels of growth hormone. But we know from mouse studies that the aging effects can be obtained almost equivalently uh, by having uh, removing growth hormone or removing the growth hormone receptor. So both mice are very long-lived, very healthy, uh, regardless of whether you do it by removing the receptor or removing the growth hormone. All right, so I've got a challenging question for you because there's a lot of confusion on this area or in this area. Uh, many people who uh, seek to optimize their health through strength training, which you recommend in the book, uh, do that in, a, in an effort to optimize growth hormone pulses because growth hormone has some benefits. It's not like we want to get rid of growth hormone. We need it. So how do you reconcile the fact that, you know, there appears to be many benefits from not having the receptors for it or, or essentially relatively low levels versus requiring it to get uh, anabolic burst to build muscle strength, which you need, especially as you get older? Yes, and I think this uh, could be, if you think about insulin, uh, this is a good analogy. Um, you need the insulin, but a lot of insulin all the time gives you insulin resistance and, and diabetes. Ah, okay. Uh, so, and, and the main thing, is, I don't think it's so much growth hormone, but it's IGF-1 and insulin downstream of growth hormone and the growth hormone receptors, right? right? And these stop, are also produced stop. locally. Let, let's just stop there because, you know, some researchers or uh, investigators substitute IGF-1 for growth hormone. And I'm wondering, is that a fair thing to do? Because growth hormone is very difficult to measure. IGF-1 is easy. Yeah. So, no, no, it's not, it, it's, you can substitute it, but, uh, but you can approximate growth hormone activity in general with IGF-1 levels. So for example, the Larones have very low growth okay. hormone activity and they have very low IGF-1. So Usually, okay. let's say, if you go on a low-protein diet, you're going to have low growth hormone production uh, and, uh, uh, or certainly low growth hormone receptor activity and low IGF-1. Right? So they okay. usually go together. But there are some cases where they can separate. And obviously, growth hormone can act in, on much more than IGF-1. Right? So sure, growth hormone sure. acts on TOR directly, on insulin, and probably almost any pathway that you can think of. So yeah, no, I, I, they're, they're certainly not the same thing, but uh, 
But yes, okay. it's a lot easier to measure IGF-1. All right. Well, thank you for clearing that up. And that was greatly helpful. So let's progress into the next segue, which you so nicely uh, get, gave us, which is the progression to mTOR and protein restriction. You are one of the few authors I've ever read that aggressively promotes radically reduced protein concentration. And I thoroughly agree with you 100%. I mean, I think you you hit the target like right on, right on, you know, right the, the bullseye. So your recommendation is about 0.31 to 0.36 grams of protein. And you have to look that up in a table. It sometimes it'll tell you on the package, nutritional facts, per pound of body weight. So that's essentially about a third. So if you weigh 150 pounds, that's 50 grams of protein, which is probably significantly lower than most people are consuming. So you've been uh, aware of and studying the mTOR pathway for a long time, and I lecture around the country, and most people have never heard of mTOR. So why don't you first explain mTOR and the profound influence that this reduced protein recommendation has? Yeah, so first of all, I will say that I mean, even though we discovered that, but uh, if you go around the world right now and ask uh, what is probably the most validated pathway that causes aging, and you ask 100 scientists, I think at least uh, uh, most of them will agree that TOR is mm -hmm. a validated uh, pathway or validated protein promoting uh, or gene promoting aging and age-related diseases right now. So there may be a few uh, that don't agree, but I would say the great majority will agree. Um, and and well, so, well, let, let me just stop there. That, that's the research community, and I applaud that. But it takes a while to transfer the information from the research scientists like you to the clinical, uh, to the clinicians, and then secondarily to the general public. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, these are the scientists, right? So then now the scientists have basically set the stage, like in most cases, right? If you mm -hmm. think of any drug out there. So the scientists now are, at some point, somebody discovers something, but then it has to be validated by many labs. Now we're at that point where many labs agree that this is important, at least in mice, and agree that this is likely or very likely to be important for humans. So for example, uh, um, uh, metformin also regulates TOR signal, right? And now mm -hmm. near Barzillai and other are now uh, uh, hopefully soon starting a large randomized uh, clinical trial on the use of metformin for uh, you know, targeting aging and therefore age-related disease, right? And rapamycin is the other drug that now has already been tested clinically. Many, many clinical uh, trials is already used for different uh, diseases, but now there is also the idea to use rapamycin uh, for prevention of uh, age-related diseases. So, um, so mm, proteins control uh, um, the uh, growth hormone IGF-1 pathway which also control TOR signaling and probably, uh, as we've shown, PKA signaling. Mm -hmm. and, and together, this network does two main things. One is when it's shut down. So when you have low protein or you have a drug that blocks these pathways, you have increased protection, right? So the, the, the organism gets in this, what I call a shielded mode, and it mm -hmm. becomes highly protected. That's one. Then uh, this we discovered a long time ago. Then recently, more recently, in the last five or six years, we discovered that the same pathways are now blocking uh, regeneration. Mm -hmm. So the signal apparently to stem cells and, and other cells that are involved in regeneration uh, is uh, it comes from, from TOR and from PKA, at least part of the signal. So, so if you have high levels of proteins and, and high nourishment uh, and high growth hormone, et cetera, and high TOR, then this regen regenerative potential is on hold and uh, once you remove it then the stem cells are turned on and uh, uh, and then eventually though it is the uh, refeeding that causes the the major uh, regeneration rejuvenation right so it's really uh, important you know this might be a problem with chronic calorie restriction if you do it all the time and you never have the refeeding moment you may not have the opportunity to rebuild so starvation essentially uh, on one side by autophagy, on the other side by actually killing cells, uh, gets rid of junk, and then uh, turns on the stem cells, and then when you refeed, this goes into the rebuilding mode. 
Yeah, and I I like to say, I used to say junk, but now I get a little more scientific with people and 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 specifically say that it's senescent cells, and a senescent cell is just like the word senile. It's an aged cell, typically that stops reproducing. It's lost the ability to reproduce, and it's just clogging up your system. And normally, if you're eating a conventional diet, you don't have the ability to remove those cells effectively, and they cause harm and damage. They increase inflammation. So the the fasting uh, or fasting mimicking diet will radically improve your body's ability to remove these damaged cells. And, and I, I believe there's research now, I and mean, there's a significant number of researchers who are looking at alternative methods to actually remove the senescent cells because there's been some studies that show the dramatic improvement in, in health and longevity by doing that. But you can do it yourself without any drugs or anything. Yes, so we're looking at that right now. So I have several people working on that project right now. We'll see what the results are. But I think it's much more than senescent cells. I think it's uh, oh, okay. for cancer is it may be a precancerous cell. So we've shown clearly that the, the, the fasting mimicking diet can uh, selectively remove disobedient, disobeying cells, right? So, uh, and it may be a, a wide variety of damage. It may be the mitochondria is damaged, and then uh, you, the, that cell is going to die because it's going to uh, impose a fatty acid or ketone body dependent metabolism, or it could be a precancerous cell that rebels, or it could be you know a cell that has uh, damaged uh, components and, and and cannot adapt to this uh, changing and, and more extreme environment, right? So, so I think it's really clearing a lot of damaged cells, uh, whatever it is. Uh, and now, you know, we're, we're very interested in what are the mechanisms uh, mm -hmm. of distinguishing good cells from bad cells. We don't know yet, but certainly uh, it, it can do that. And, and it's really remarkable how it can do that. Okay, so I want to go back to the protein a bit because I think that's a, an area where many people confuse. And you know, you're, as you said, your recommendations are about a third of a gram of protein per pound, which is relatively low. But then getting back to the growth hormone discussion where we talked about pulsing it, isn't protein the same way? Because you're going to stimulate the set, you're going to stimulate growth hormone and IGF one and insulin, and that your your body requires these periodic pulses of these anabolic stimulants to preserve your muscle mass. Otherwise, you'll be cachectic and you'll look like you're a, a concentration cramps camp survivor and you know probably will die a premature death. So what is your recommendation about this pulsing frequency? And do you believe there's benefit to combining those anabolic bursts with extra protein above the one third uh, and extra healthy carbohydrates uh, during strength training sessions. Yes, in the book I talk about this, and, and I cite a number of papers that are basically showing that, um, of course, you need the pro you need sufficient protein. So this is very important. Uh, there is no doubt about it. And now, if somebody is training, uh, the the data indicates that above uh, the 0 0.8, 0 0.9 grams per kilogram. Um, or, or, you know, uh, 31 to 37 grams, 0.31 per 37 grams per pound, it doesn't really do much more for muscle building. So, so when, they, when they gave athletes a, uh, that, that amount or a little bit more than that, and then they gave them a lot more, a lot more uh, did not make any difference, right? So uh, mm -hmm. it was really about 30, 35 grams of protein, of good quality protein per workout that optimize the, uh, the muscle uh, synthesis. And so it looks like uh, having uh, very high levels of protein won't make much difference. Now, is it possible that if you did this uh, three times a day and you have 30 grams plus the workout, could that uh, change things? That's possible. Uh, I don't know that that study has ever been done, um, but certainly giving uh, excess protein in several studies uh, did not result in, uh, in a higher muscle building. And part of this could be the stem cells, right? It could be the satellite cells, and we're, that's another study we're doing right now. Um, so the, you know, the, the high level of protein uh, may, be, may in fact uh, block the satellite cells from being activated, and, well, uh, and, uh, and, and, and that may be part of the problem. I wasn't referring to double or tripling your recommendation, but maybe increasing it by 25%. So a relatively modest bump on the strength training days. 
Yeah, no, that's possible. That is possible that if you time it, but that we will need a study, right? So it's possible okay. that if you keep it at the normal level and then uh, together with the training, you increase it by 20, 25%. Yes, that is possible. And maybe even likely that if you do this, uh, you know, a couple of times a week, um, yeah. that this will help you, that this will help you uh, in okay. the muscle mass. Yeah. Oh, we're in complete agreement. That's the same conclusion I reached. Now, refinement of that, because the devil's in the details. And in your book, you discuss the need for the elderly people over 65 or frail of increasing their protein intake uh, because of their uh, sarcopenia, age-related muscle loss. So I'm wondering what type of increase. Is it recommending the same amount, about 25%? Um, it, it, it's not a, a, a major increase, but maybe going up 10, 20% uh, based on also the, the lean body mass loss, right? So starting at age 65, a lot of elderly start losing lean body mass. And I think as long as they maintain it, then they don't have to worry about it. But if they start losing it, then both the exercise training, the muscle training, and increasing a little bit the protein uh, is important. Now, what the, clearly the, the study showed was that if you're deficient in protein, you're going to have a problem, right? So mm -hmm. people that are starting to not pay attention to the protein intake daily, uh, then they're going to, the, those were the ones that did the, by far the worst, uh, whereas they were fine when they were 65 and younger. Okay, good. So uh, I'd also like to discuss your earlier comment on uh, the that many researchers are studying metformin or rapamycin as the uh, longevity strategies. And although metformin is relatively benign, probably one of the safest drugs out there with been studied on millions of people or been used by millions of people, um, with rel probably not much of a downside. Rapamycin, of course, has, is a far more toxic. It's a cancer drug initially, and that's what its primary purpose is for. But, you know, you can right. certainly microdose it. But my approach is, you know, I, I like to focus on natural strategies. And, and Ron Rosedale was one of my mentors. And, you know, he convinced me that the far more effective than rapamycin for controlling mTOR is simply restricting your protein intake. You can do it with a diet. You don't need an expensive and potentially dangerous drug. Yes. And, and, you know, I don't know what percentage of the researchers out there who accept TOR as a pathway may be more focused on using pharmacological methods and rather, rather simple biological dietary interventions. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that unfortunately, especially in the United States, but not just in the United States, also in Europe and elsewhere, uh, we're always uh, stuck on this uh, pharmacological um, intervention and, and I think what most people are not considering, like rapamycin, we had first used rapamycin in the mid-90s, right? We already knew that extended lifespan of yeast. And I always say, I don't want to work on this. And, and, and the reason was that rapamycin is acting right in the center of the cell. Mm -hmm. And it was just a matter of time before we started seeing the side effects, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the side effects are hyperglycemia, uh, our uh, cataract increase, uh, you know, testicular degeneration. I mean, these are just some of the ones that we know right now. And, and they might be likely to be uh, much more than this. So uh, I think that with pharmacological intervention, most of the time, the, uh, the, the, what they cause is not very sophisticated. So you're blocking something, and it's not something that is evolved to be done this way. Uh, now, metformin may have uh, turned out to be something that, it may mimic something naturally occurring, uh, and mm -hmm. maybe that's why it's not having so much so much side effects. But we'll see. I think you know we'll also have to see when 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 more people take it, uh, what what will be the result and what will be the side effects. But uh, yeah, absolutely, the, the the natural way, particularly if it triggers something that has gone through billions of years of evolution, so it is the result of of these billions of years. It's likely to do good and not really do much damage uh, if it's yeah. done correctly. Uh, and I think, you know, in the book, I talk about five pillars, and one of the pillars really has to do with basic science and evolutionary biology, et cetera. Uh, but another uh, pillar is the epidemiology. So you come up with an idea, and then you, you say, okay, well, if low protein intake is so good for you, then let me look at the population that have low protein intake. And if we look at thousands of people, and it turns out that people that have a low protein diet get a lot of cancer, 
then we will have a problem, right? But that's not the case. It's the other way around, of course, and not mm -hmm. just for, for cancer, but also for cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes, et cetera. So, so I think that if you look at multiple pillars, uh, you um, have an idea. Uh, and and in, this, in the case of proteins, uh, um, I think uh, a low protein uh, is, uh, is the way to go, at least to a, up to a certain age. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to talk about fasting next, but before we do, I just want to make one final comment on the metformin because it, it, even though it is relatively safe, it does have some downside consequences and we know it lowers vitamin B12 levels, which are very important for your health. So yes, you can take a B12 supplement, but wouldn't it be better to use the diet? But if you're looking for some supplemental assistance, there, there are uh, herbs like berberine, which seems to work really well. It's a a phenolic compound that has almost identical benefits, works on the same pathways, I believe, AMPK, to in, in, uh, receive those benefits because it activates the AMPK, AMPK pathway. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, when you talk about uh, herbal extracts, uh, the problem I think there is what else do they contain? They probably have thousands and thousands of molecules. And could it be that after 20 years of this, uh, somebody's uh, now developing a problem like we've seen for rapamycin. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is why another pillar that I talk about in the book is centenarian studies, right? Uh, try yeah. to stick with what uh, the very successful centenarian population, Okinawa, Loma Linda, you know, Sardinia, Calabria in Italy, what they, <laughs> have they done? And, um, um, you know, and try to learn from them uh, and try to match the science with, the, with this epidemiology and centenarian studies. And, and you know, most of them did not take high levels of extracts. Uh, no. Well, so, they didn't take metformin either. <laughs> right, exactly, right. They didn't take metformin. But for example, fasting uh, was very common, especially if it was periodic. Low protein diets were you know, the, the, the rule for all of them. So, uh, so yeah, I think that, that that's a good way to start saying, well, most likely uh, this is going to uh, accompany me in a very long uh, lifespan and healthy one and uh, not not taking risks on something that uh, that could shorten your lifespan even if it was in 10% of the people I mean I wouldn't want to be one of the 10% that finds out after 20 years of taking a drug that uh, they're gonna they're gonna have a problem yeah so I've come to the conclusion, and I agree with your, your comments on this, that fasting is one of the most powerful metabolic interventions you could possibly conceive of. There's just nothing that comes close. Why? Because it switches our cells to a protected anti-aging mode. It promotes autophagy and uh, replacing cell components with newly generated uh, functional ones because of stem cell activation. So this is why I embrace it wholeheartedly, and I actually today is the first day I've eaten in five days and it's my third time so every month I do a five-day fast which is pretty easy to do now I, what I want to jump into is the distinction because you mentioned the fasting mimicking diet which is not a five-day water fast and when the fast I did was a water fast nothing but water and salt that was it so I, I know you believe that's useful and probably even more effective than the fasting mimicking diet, but the issue and the, the reason why you developed it, as I understand it, is the, the compliance issue. So maybe you can delve into that now. Yeah, so w we first started with cancer patients about 10 years ago. And, um, and of course, uh, um, not surprisingly, the cancer patient and the oncologist did not want to do water-only fasting. Um, and so uh, we went to the uh, National Cancer Institute and, and they funded the research uh, to develop a fasting mimicking diet. Uh, in fact, they had a call, uh, their own call to develop a fasting mimicking diet. And so we responded, won the contract and, and, and did it. And, um, and the reason uh, is simple is that there is an issue of compliance, but also an issue of safety. When you get a diet first of all uh, water only fasting has been done or very low calorie fasting like say 100 to 100 has been done exclusively in clinics uh, now people can do it but they do it in clinic for a reason is that it, it really revolutionizes your metabolism and to a lot of people uh, it's going to be dangerous um, now hypotension hypoglycemia etc cetera, etc cetera. now the fasting mimicking diet, uh, the purpose of the fasting mimicking diet was to make it easier on people, but also to make sure that uh, they don't 
uh, go to an extreme state in, in which then they start having problems. And, and we saw it in the clinical trial. You know, we saw even with the fasting weekend diet, uh, people uh, you know, can get weaker and, and, and can have some problems. But with the water-only fasting, uh, this is, uh, these problems go, uh, uh, go up by, by order, an order of magnitude. Yeah, so you know, I'm a I'm a fan of water fasting, and I've recommended to many of my friends and relatives, and they've had no problems with it. And I think this is part partly due to because I warned them that they just don't go just say, okay, I'm going to do a five day water fast right now, and if they're on medication, so first of all, they have to be very careful with their medicines. And as you mentioned in the book, I mean, the only people that seem to have died from water fast were those who weren't taking insulin. So you've got to be really careful with any hypoglycemics or any antihypertensives because you will normalize and you can overdose. But what I found is that uh, an approach that you also recommend, intermittent fasting, is a really powerful way to help them gradually acquire the ability to burn fat as their primary fuel. So if they progress to the point where they're only eating in a four-hour window every day and do that for a month, then they're pretty much burning fat as a primary fuel, generating healthy amounts of ketones, have metabolic flexibility, and can generally transition into a five-day water fast, assuming they have no serious medical problems. We'll talk, talk about which ones in a moment because the restrictions for a water fast and fasting mimicking diet are identical. So, but my experience is in observing that, that it actually is pretty easy. And it, you know, I've done it a number of times now, and there's, you know, most people when they do a water fast, they're hungry on the second day. And when you've progressed, to that point through uh, this long period of restricted eating, then th there is no hunger. You just aren't hungry the entire five days. And it's just that you don't require iron willpower discipline. And there's really not many side effects unless you're taking magnesium as supplement, then you'll have loose stools. Yeah. Well, uh, I think in the book I talk about that. And um, I, I really uh, support the 12-hour restriction, maybe 13 hours. But I talk about the fact that I wouldn't go over that. And, okay. and the reason is the pillars, right? So, so I talk about, for example, Goldstone. Uh, there are a number of studies showing uh, Goldstone uh, operations going up for people that surpass the 12-hour uh, fasting period. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a major increase. It's not a 5% increase. Uh, so, you know, right there already would be one reason not to do it. The other one is now a number of studies, including our own, on uh, uh, skipping breakfast. Of course, if you do four hours only, you're not going to have breakfast. And now there are a number of studies showing increased cardiovascular disease for people that uh, skip breakfast regularly, at least four, four different studies and several large studies. Well, you, uh, don't, have, you don't have to skip breakfast. You can, you can skip dinner, <laughs> which is a more effective strategy. Yeah, but if you eat within four hours, I think most people will have to skip breakfast. I uh, say they have lunch. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I, I have a late breakfast, typically around 10 o'clock or 11. Yeah, then, I mean, um, then let's assume that um, uh, that, that uh, is a possibility. I think that uh, you're entering a, uh, a uh, very little data supporting the long-term efficacy, right? So I would say it could work and it could damage, it could hurt you, right? It could, it could help you, it could hurt you. Uh, mm -hmm. It might help you in the short run. It might hurt you in the long run. Why? There is no epidemiological study that support, that support the four hours. Uh, there is no centenarians that do that. I, I've never seen it. Um, the basic research uh, is not clear even from mice that, that there's going to be uh, a lot of benefits. There is some data suggesting that that's beneficial. So at least, you know, from the basic science, there, that's supported. Uh, well, but, but I would say that clinical studies are not there. Mice aren't, I mean, the clinical studies and the epidemiologic, I think, are valid parameters, but the mice are pretty poor because their metabolism is so different than humans. I think if you fast them for three days, you kill them. I mean, they, they're, they're no, absolutely accelerated. Four, yeah. four days. Okay. So, I mean, you know, they'd be dead in four days, whereas a human can easily go for a few days. No, no, days. no. They can eat. Uh, I'm just talking about the eating within a four-hour wind, okay. right? So, I'm saying they, that's done, and that's actually beneficial to mice. You know, if you if you make them eat within a small window, it's beneficial. Uh, but uh, I would say that for most people, it's, it's risky. Uh, now, if there is a specific, and it's difficult, it's extremely difficult uh, and, and risky. Uh, but if there is a specific reason, let's say somebody was obese, it might not be mm -hmm. such a bad idea to do it for two or three months or even six months because now you have a bigger problem that you have to deal with. Yeah. So maybe combining the four-hour restriction 
with the periodic fasting mimicking diet uh, may be actually a very good idea, uh, you know, for yeah. Or water fasting if they're doing the four-hour restriction. So you mentioned obesity, and the primary reason, as I'm sure you would agree, is insulin resistance. And we know that 50% of the country has diabetes or prediabetes, but what's not commonly appreciated is that 80% or more, probably even closer to 90% of the country today has insulin resistance. And that's what these dietary approaches do is they help your body resolve insulin resistance. And of course, that you get the, all the other secondary hormonal benefits and, and uh, you know, blood glucose improvements. Yeah, but this is why I, 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 um, I think that the fasting mimicking diet is the way to go. And, uh, um, and, and because it, what we notice when we tell people what to do, we, if we tell them too many things, then they're not going to do any of it, right? So with the fasting mimicking diet, basically we're saying, look, you're going to have between 800 and 1,100 calories a day, and you're only going to do it on average every four months, right? So if you took, mm-hmm. like you just talk about 80%, right? So these 80% of the people, say 80% of that 80%, uh, we'll probably be able to do it uh, once every three or three to four months. Now, all of a sudden, um, most people can say, look, if you don't bother me with anything else, I think I can do that, right? And that will already be a tremendous, tremendous success if we could do that. Uh, if we start saying, but yeah, but on top of that, you have to do this and this and that, then I think you get the effect that you get with most diets. Eventually, after six months, they're going to drop it, and, uh, and, they're, and they're never going to go there again, right? So. Um, so in water only fasting is the same way. I would say either you're really hardcore and you're one of those people that say, uh, you know, I'm like military type and then you can do it because I've done it and I struggle and, and I am hardcore military type. Uh, <laughs> so, so I, th- I still remember every day of the water only fasting that now I just suffer for the absence of meals. You know, it wasn't so much what was in the meal, but it was like, not having anything to me, it was it was torture. So um, you know, and I think to most people uh, that that's the case. But yeah, so some people there. I think there's a, a concern again on safety. But if if uh, um, you know they can be followed by a doctor or somebody like that, uh, the All first right. time they do it, well, it's well, a possibility. I don't recommend it, but you know, I I, I don't yeah, I don't want to talk against it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, that's where we disagree. I, I have different opinions on that, but that's okay. That's what life's about, different opinions. So, but let's talk about the restrictions of those who need to be particularly cautious, whether it's fasting or fasting mimicking diet, and those would be pregnant women, people who are seriously underweight or have low body mass index or suffer from anorexia, probably not a good idea. And if you're over 70, unless you're in really great health, and anyone who's fragile or people with liver or kidney disease. So is that pretty much covered, or do you have any other people you'd recommend to avoid it? Those are the main ones. And then, of course, any, anyone with a disease will have to have the doctor treating the disease, uh, basically finding out about it so that they can have an opinion, an educated opinion on should you do it or not. Okay. So, and you also recommend uh, to be really careful about very hot, lengthy showers, even though when I'm, when I'm fasting, water fasting, I, I will still do my 170 degree sauna for a half hour and then do a cold plunge into the pool uh, without, you know, no noticeable psychological changes or physiological. Yes. I mean, obviously some people can do uh, all kinds of things. Uh, we're worried about one in a thousand, and uh, okay. and so or one in a hundred or ten in a hundred, you know, either way. Uh, so that yeah, we have to worry about uh, everybody. And so if somebody sure. uh, is finally taking a shower and they after they've done it three or four times, they can test it out, and and if they feel fine, uh, they can probably do it. But it's probably they they should know it's risky, and uh, you know, and for example, sure. uh, in in a, in the summer when it's very hot. Uh, if somebody's relatively frail, we basically tell them, you know, wait until the end of the summer before you do it. Uh, okay. I mean, in places, for example, in southern Italy, uh, or, or yeah. So, so. Well, you now your fasting mimicking diet is actually a very low calorie diet, it's several hundred calories that you're eating through the five days. And what is your observations on the? Uh, autophagy benefits and stem cell production. Do you find that they're comparable to water fasting or do you get big, bigger increases in those biological processes if you have even zero calories? 
No, the, the, the fasting mimicking diet has been developed to match the effects of water-only fasting, right? So that was the idea. And we looked at ketone bodies, uh, IGF-1, IGF-BP-1, and glucose, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the idea was that should be, we get same or very, very similar effects on those four, suggesting that, um, you know, then autophagy and everything else is going to be uh, enough. And, and, and we've looked at that, and we looked at the stem cell activation, et cetera. So they... The um, the fasting diet has the the expected effects on on those uh, uh, on those changes. Okay, so you haven't, didn't see much of a difference between water fasting and very low calorie diet like FMD. No, and also the FMD contains ingredients that uh, we're now looking into the possibility that they themselves are inducing stem cell activation, autophagy, etc. So. Um, okay. Yeah. So, for example, the the, the fasting mimicking diet is high in, in certain fats, um, and we're looking at and it and it has glycerol in it, and we're looking at could this combination actually uh, promote independently of the fasting promote the activation of stem cells and intracellular regenerative processes like autophagy. Okay. Now, one of the strong recommendations in your book is to the encouragement for people to actively incorporate this approach uh, if they're undergoing treatment for cancer. And from my review and understanding of the literature, and I'd like you to comment on this, I mean, it, to me, it's reprehensible medical malpractice for oncologists not to integrate this because the evidence in animals and the, the clinical studies have been done is so profoundly clear that it radically improves not only the effectiveness of cancer th therapy, but the d decrease in side effects from it. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a, a, a difficult battle because, you know, we work with the top uh, oncology hospitals in the world, MD Anderson, Mayo Clinic. USC Norris Cancer Center. So we really didn't want to be the rebels here. We, we really fought for the, for the patients. You know, we fought very hard, but also we wanted them to agree with us. We wanted the, 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 the oncologists to, to basically say, yes, this is a good way to do it. And in the end, I think what we all agreed on was the following. Uh, now there are a number of, of new clinical trials. They're almost finished with hundreds of patients and fasting mimicking diets. So those, I think, are going to be conclusive. But I think we agreed that until then, if the patient does not have a clear, very viable option. So mm -hmm. if there's a viable option, you can just get surgery, get a couple of cycles of chemo and, uh, and not, uh, you know, high levels and not believed to have long-term side effects. Well, you know, uh, that's a decision of the patient together with the doctor whether they want to do the fasting making diet or not. But if there is more advanced cancer, uh, metastatic, there are really not many options, then I think uh, we basically said the oncologist should seriously consider doing the fasting mimicking diet together with the standard of care. And yes. that's the beauty of this. It, it works yeah. very yeah. well with the standard of care. We've now shown it for kinase inhibitors. We've shown it for uh, chemotherapy, all kinds of chemotherapy, all kinds of cancers. And now we have more data coming up with, with all kinds of new therapies. For example, now we're looking at immunotherapy. And uh, so, but clearly we've shown last year that it acts as an immunotherapy itself, right? So it, it makes the, the cancer visible to the immune system and being attacked by the immune system. So I would say, yes, then absolutely go to your doctor, your oncologist, uh, and do it with them. And, 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 you know, if you insisting may not be a, a bad strategy because sometimes they say, well, I don't know anything about it. Well, you know, at least they should read the clinical trials that are already published. They're small. And they should yeah. read the fact they can go on trials.gov and see that there are now three or four different large clinical trials ongoing. Some of them are almost over. So the safety concerns, I think, now are really minimal. And the potential benefits are, as you said, are, are, are very high. Um, and, uh, you know, in mice, uh, as you know, we consistently see cancer-free survival, even in the metastatic models, meaning that the mice are essentially cured. Uh, in combination with the chemo or or, or, or or the therapy, so and chemo alone or the or the fasting alone doesn't do very much, but together they're very powerful, and yeah. uh, and so I think that, that that's important to talk to the patients about about this and give them a, an opportunity, yeah. particularly when they don't have any any viable options.
Yeah, and I wasn't recommending or implying that people should just consider doing fasting as their primary treatment. That will help, but it clearly, in most cases, will not work. You need to combine it with other therapies. And if, and if chemotherapy uh, is your choice or even radiotherapy, then you know, fine, then you can do that. I think there's better strategies. I'm not a, in complete agreement with the conventional approaches, but clearly the data is very powerful with conventional medicine. To do that, oncologist disagrees, then you have to remember that you are the patient. You control this and you can find another oncologist who has uh, reviewed the literature and is uh, really a little bit more up to date with respect to the benefits of this because it's your life that's at stake. It's not theirs. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And particularly in the advanced cases, when the doctor tells you uh, there is not much we can do, uh, mm -hmm. then I, I really am very disappointed at the ones that say, well, there is nothing you can do, but I'm not going to allow you to do a, a fasting mimicking diet together with the standard of care. That, to me, makes no sense. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, kudos to you and your work for helping cement this in the conventional scientific literature so that, you know, there's a greater appreciation of this and you've created the solid science that's required before con conventional medicine can make that transition. So we, we desperately need astute, uh, intelligent researchers like yourself who are receptive to this pretty radical shift from, from uh, conventional thinking. Yeah. And I think, you know, and, and what, what's key, I think the mentality and up to now, not just in cancer, has been uh, to just have the drug, um, you know, target whatever problem. Mm -hmm. And I think we're, we're missing the, uh, the broader effect. For example, in cancer, we're saying, well, the targeted therapy can certainly go after certain uh, genes or, or pathways in the cancer cells, and it can be very effective. But a lot of the times, you're going to have 10, 20, 30% of patients responding and the other ones don't. I think what the fasting and fasting mimicking diet do is make this much wider and, and much more effective. And so it's like a broad approach and the targeted approach together. Uh, they seem to be, uh, you know, there, there seems to be true synergism. Yes. So let's transition from cancer, which admittedly is a massive problem that affects pretty much half of the population themselves personally or someone they know, to longevity, which affects everyone watching this. You all want to slow down the aging process. So in your book, you talk about the use of alternate day fasting and treadmill exercise in rats that resulted in greater maintenance of muscle mass and decrease in sarcopenia that uh, simply intermittent fasting or exercise alone didn't. So uh, maybe you can comment on that for a bit. Yes. Yeah. No, we don't, we don't do uh, alternate day fasting. Um, and uh, we just focus on periodic fasting mimicking diets. Um, mm -hmm. So what we've shown is using periodic fa uh, fasting mimicking diet, uh, in this case was mice taking this once, uh, twice uh, a month for four days. And then we just let them go back to uh, whatever diet that they normally eat. Mm -hmm. and, and the first interesting thing was that uh, they're not really calorie restricted, meaning that they overeat everything that they undereat during the fasting making diet. So they eat, mm -hmm. of course, a lot less during those four days, uh, twice a month, but then they overeat it. So without calorie restriction, uh, they end up losing uh, visceral fat. Uh, they don't lose mu uh, subcutaneous fat. They lose visceral fat. And, but they don't lose any muscle mass. So they, whatever muscle mass they lose, they regain during the refeeding. So this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. It really separates this fasting mimicking diet periodically from most or if not all of other diets in which there is always uh, fats and water, fat and water and muscle that are lost in this, in this weight loss process. Mm -hmm. um, so that's very important. And then uh, I think that uh, we've shown that, uh, for example, inflammation, uh, is reduced, uh, inflammatory diseases like dermatitis are reduced, cancers are almost uh, reduced by uh, 50%, close to 50%, but uh, more importantly, they're postponed in the mice, and they, a lot of the, the tumors are benign versus malignant, so it uh, so seems uh, uh, to go after many, many different processes. Another one uh, was the, uh, the cognitive um, aspect, meaning the mice that received the fasting-making diet uh, twice a month uh, we're cognitively doing better or much better than the mice on the regular diet. Uh, so 
as expected, this is really going after multiple systems and causing multi-system regeneration and rejuvenation uh, leading to uh, improved performance. And another one was the immune system, uh, you know, boosting uh, or regeneration of the immune system to uh, go back to a more useful state. Okay. So to me, one of the primary messages in your book, The Longevity Diet, is really cycling, this fasting cycling. And I want you to go into that because, you know, your initial work um, with Walford really focused on calorie restriction. And there, there's some questionable benefit. I mean, some people believe it, but others don't in humans. But clearly, the fast, int the fast fasting cycling, not continuous fasting, not regular intermittent fasting, but the cycling where you go in and out of it has probably stronger effects without the burden of chronic underfeeding and some of the devastating consequences that can be associated with uh, weight loss or, or very low BMIs. Yes. And, and I would also, um, you know, point out that it's not cycling that needs to be every month. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it can be, but we basically say if you're obese and you have high cholesterol and high blood pressure, yes, you probably have to do it every month. Mm -hmm. But if you're the average until you're person... Until you're, until you're healthy. Until you're healthy, exactly, right. But if you're the average person mm -hmm. that may have high cholesterol and that's it, uh, this could be once every three months. Uh, mm -hmm. So every 90 days, you do it for five days. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's very much reasonable. And we now from the clinical trial, and I think we're going to talk about it, um, uh, we show that um, there are long-lasting effects. So, so if we measure the effects of three cycles of the fasting-making diet three months after the end of the third cycle, we still see about 60% of the changes there, you know, suggesting that the changes are going to go away, but it might take three to six months uh, for these changes uh, to be uh, completely wiped out. So... Uh, you've been using this fasting mimicking diet for a while now, and I'm wondering if you could summarize your experience on the frequency. So you've already mentioned that it probably should be monthly if the person is struggling with an issue, and maybe even a bit more aggressive if they're struggling with a terminal illness. But, uh, you know, so maybe comment on that. I, mean, I think we know it's every month if, until you reach your goal. But once you're healthy, how, you know, what's the frequency range that you're finding and uh, how do you determine the recommendation? Yes, so in the clinical trials, it was three cycles, five days, once a month for three months. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the clear effect is, uh, uh, you know, reduction in risk factors for, for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and also markers for aging are clearly, um, are clearly improved. Um, and now we're calculating how much younger somebody is after three cycles. And, and we think it's going to be several years. Um, so then... Um, how, how, do you do, how do you do that calculation? Well, the length, um, or? it's based on... We're, we're working with Morgan Levine, uh, who's a, sci a scientist at Yale. And she basically um, uh, looked at large databases and, and uh, associated uh, risk factors and markers with biological age and chronological age. So. Uh, she can basically uh, show that a, a particular profile is associated with uh, a certain uh, biological age, right? So if you have many, she looks at many markers and then together she can calculate your biological age. Uh, and yeah, so that's, that's how we do it. That's how we're doing it. Okay, great. But, uh, uh, but, but then if you look at specific recommendation, then again, the obese, two markers for uh, for uh, disease, two risk factors for disease that are elevated once a month. And then it goes, I think, overweight, uh, two uh, markers once every two months. Uh, somebody who's normal weight, uh, two markers uh, maybe once every two months. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, sorry, sorry, once every three months. And then somebody that is um, uh, normal weight and maybe uh, is very healthy uh, once every four months or two, five months, and somebody who is an athlete uh, has a perfect diet uh, and has, does all the right things, maybe once every six months uh, is sufficient. Interesting. Well, thank you. You've helped to certainly modify and evolve my perspective on this, and I greatly appreciate that. So your book is The Longevity Diet. Maybe you can hold it up so people can get a chance to see it. 
I don't have the the U.S. Oh, version. The... I, I can show you the Portuguese okay. version here. <laughs> well, let's see the Portuguese version. Probably the cover will look different. And and no, it's gonna you know, look we're going to posting this interview before the U.S. version comes out. I was really yeah, sad and annoyed. Because wrote it's gonna look more yeah, like the it. Italian. Yeah, the Italian version came out first, and when we did our last interview, you know, I, I don't read Italian, even though I took two years of it in college. Uh, I still can't read it. So, you know, I was disappointed that there wasn't uh, a, a, an English version, but now we don't have to be disappointed because it's coming out in January. January so 2nd. shortly, yeah. So we hope to have this interview up before the book comes out so that people can really uh, have a better appreciation of what it is. But do you have any concluding reinforcements or summaries or points that we didn't uh, cover well that you'd like to emphasize? Uh, no, I think you covered uh, uh, everything uh, pretty well, yes. Um. Okay, good. Well, it's a good book. If you are like me and are really interested in extending not only how long you live or something in the book that you call the health span, but the quality of years so that you kind of go out like the EverReady battery where you go like this and drop, which is the goal. You know, hopefully you're, you fall, you, you pass away in your sleep at night with no pain. But but prior to that, you're fully mobile, have all your capacity had when you're, you were much younger and, and pretty much have an inflammatory free condition so that you're struggling with joint pains or other complications of chronic disease. This is a really powerful strategy, you know, to, to get that knowledge of how to integrate it. And, and we really appreciate your refinement on the intensity of the recommendation. So that's been, was a, is probably one of your most important contribu contributions from my perspective. I mean, you, you're clearly a pioneer in this area and, you know, great thanks to you for your persevering efforts at helping us understand the chemistry and the biochemistry and the science behind it so that we can integrate this into our lifestyle and hopefully live long and healthy.